Open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host of Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Okay, welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have a tremendous interview with Mark Friedenbach. He's been a core Bitcoin developer for quite a few years now. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, so I remember we uh, first met, what, at the Coin Summit Conference in San Francisco a few yeah, years ago. Yeah, that's beginning of last year, yeah. Yeah, so it's, uh, I mean, you've been involved in Bitcoin for a long time. Maybe you can tell a little bit of bit of your background like how'd you get involved in the magic internet money <laughs> yeah it's a story i sometimes tell that you know the first time someone had set me aside and told me about bitcoin i thought stupidest idea in the world never take off but it, bitcoin is like that it takes a little bit of time to really understand its full potential and once it does it bites you like a bug and you just can't can't get away from it so i, I had been volunteering my time a little bit working on a few bitcoin proposals and 2013, I had a career opportunity change. I took it and I went full time doing Bitcoin stuff, first with the community and later uh, later helped organize the company I'm with right now at Blockstream. Yeah, so we we actually had a week with Dr. Adam Back, one of the co-founders of Blockstream. And he said, you know, one of the things with Bitcoin is that you, you, you get in there, you start working on it, you think you understand it, but... The more you keep digging into it, the more new things you figure out about it. And so it actually becomes very dangerous for people that think they understand it because they've done a little bit of work on it, but they just really don't know what they don't know. And they don't know that they don't know it, and yet they think they understand it. And it's just this really bad false sense of security. Do you think there's much to to that that perspective on Bitcoin? Are you always kind of learning something new with it and how it all interacts with with itself and and the sheer complexity of of what we're dealing with here? Yeah, that's a very interesting question because Bitcoin is a is a very multi layered piece of software and also a very multi layered idea. There's a lot going on in the code base and a lot going on behind it that the scenes, the incentives that make it work, which aren't readily apparent to people who just get involved in Bitcoin for the first time. For me, that was my initial hang-up. It wasn't until I realized Bitcoin wasn't so much a, a, a currency or even a, or a way of burning money to burning electricity to make money. It was more a way of getting settlement and trust, uh, getting pe- two parties who don't trust each other to arbitrate and come to agreement on anything. It doesn't have to be about money in a way that was non-coercive. And that's something that's never really existed in, 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 in human history. And that was what was so exciting. Now, of course... Bitcoin has the currency attached to it, and it's very important, very essential, but it is so much bigger than that. And because of that, there's a, there's a lot of trade-offs that are made to keep Bitcoin having its trustlessness, its, its, its properties of permissionless innovation and censorship resistance. These come from its decentralization, the ability for, for anyone to participate in the creation of the ledger. And 
the incentives at work here are, are very nuanced and they're multifaceted and the incentive structures themselves are somewhat fragile. They are, you have to take great care to protect them. And it's something that, that uh, a lot of people who just start to get involved in Bitcoin development often aren't versed on, aren't understanding that, you know, what might be a trivial change in one project uh, changes incentives so, so drastically that it makes Bitcoin non-viable. So let's let's dig into that with some specific examples. For example, uh, we recently had both uh, Dr. Back with uh, Gavin Andreessen, and we were discussing these things. And Gavin made an analogy that, you know, we have two megabyte web pages, and yet we have one megabyte blocks. <laughs> and, you know, it, it doesn't take very long to download a two megabyte web page. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's hitting on the bandwidth issue. Mm-hmm when it comes to the resource consumption of of the network. But what we're completely disregarding in the context of, of those resources is that there are a whole bunch of other resources that go into operating this network. What are some of those resources uh, when it comes to operating this massive decentralized uh, distributed protocol? Well, I mean, certainly there's there's an issue about network fragility and the ability for people who are not running full nodes themselves. You know, for example, people running Bitcoin wallets on their phones, their ability to connect to a broad spectrum of peers and get reliable information about the blockchain, that is something that, that takes quite a bit of software engineering. And their ability to download the transactions that involve just them without revealing to the entire world what their wallet is, what their balance is, and personal financial information. This is something that that is is actually somewhat broken in Bitcoin today that we are working to fix, but it takes time and it takes a, a lot of readjustment of the code. Now, to your to your specific example, actually, I find that when it really comes down to uh, a, a, a change in how we view incentives, you know, a web page being downloaded doesn't have this issue where it is. Companies go in and out of business based on how long it takes to download a website. Uh, if it takes one second versus two seconds, it doesn't really matter that much. With Bitcoin, whether a block takes one second or two seconds to validate is a big deal. It can make a difference in the profit margin of a miner on the periphery, and that can mean the difference between mining centralizing into a couple of entities that are very close together and highly peered or for which there are some level of cartel trust and the ability for anyone to participate anywhere in deciding the state of the current ledger, which is something Bitcoin absolutely needs to protect its freedoms. Now, you used an interesting word there. You said uh, validate the block as opposed to download the block. Hmm. I mean, download, that that corresponds to bandwidth and internet connectivity and things like that. But when you use a word validate, I mean, what resources are we talking about using in order to perform that particular function? Well, these days uh, with, with full blocks, you actually need some pretty beefy hardware to, to keep up the speed quickly with blocks as they come in. Um, when your computer receives a block from the Bitcoin network, it takes it apart and looks at each transaction and makes sure it is following the rules. 
including checking the signatures, which involves a fair amount of serialization of data, hashing, and signature checks that themselves are fairly fast. It happens in the blink of an eye each case, but if you have thousands of these in a block, then it's a lot of blinks of the eye, and it adds up over time. Man, well, maybe, maybe you know, ask a wizard, right? Like, what, what exactly is like? Walk us through, like, step by step, what's going on mm-hmm. when we're creating a block and validating a block and broadcasting a block? Like, maybe you can just walk through the order of operations that's going on here. Right. So when you're when the miner creates a block, they they call upon their Bitcoin demon, telling you, "I need more work. I want to I want to try to solve a block." And what the uh, what the mining node does is it looks at its current Ledger, the UTXO set. It looks at the and a UTXO. What, what yes, I yes, mean, I, is, this I an, is, this, is this a UFO? Are <laughs> there aliens in these UTXOs? Well, thank what? you for catching that. The UTXO is a, it stands for unspent transaction outputs, and your wallet consists of a number of these coins or unspent transaction outputs uh, that you possess the private keys towards. And whenever you create a transaction sending money, you aggregate a couple of these coins together, send some along their way, and take the rest as change in a new coin. When a miner is creating a new block, what they do is they take their list of, of which of these are still outstanding, and then they look at the transactions they have at hand, and they say, okay, which of these are spinning currently unspent transaction outputs, and we'll which will, and then we'll sort them by fee and include the ones that are the most profitable to us at the start. And then this is something that they need to do fairly often because transactions are continuously coming in. They want to be responsive. They want to be able to add new transactions in an unknown block that they're working on. But they also need to, to be able to occasionally rebuild the blocks to create new work on a regular basis. So we do want that to be fairly snappy. On the other end, once they found a block, they then need to transmit that block to the rest of the network. And the rest of the network downloads the block onto their machines. They read out the same transactions and they check themselves. Okay, I know which outputs are okay, which outputs are not been spent, and which ones are are okay to be used. And they check and verify. Okay, no double spins have gone on. They check the signatures to see that they match. And it's it's fairly straightforward operations, but there's a lot of them to be done for a lot of transactions in each block, and it ends up adding up. It can usually end up being you know somewhere on the order of a second or so for a typical block, but a really bad block where it was purposely constructed could be much worse. And so when when I talk about uh, in other interviews and such that Bitcoin, your balances are cryptographically provable, you're saying that computers actually have to do all of this math to no, prove they, that, right? They, 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 they do all the hard work of checking your proofs from start to finish to make sure. Yeah, your balance is cryptographically provable. You can present a proof, but it still needs to be checked. You can't just trust that it's valid. So yes, when a when a block is found and when it's validated, it's it's checking every single one of the proofs that is contained in the block to make sure that they're valid. Now, is it possible for miners to uh, ma- do their work but not validate the transactions, well, or would that get rejected by the network? Or because it sounds like this is a potential cost center. So like, why spend all this money? Uh, validating all of these transactions if we don't have to? Well, the miners certainly want their blocks to be valid. They want them to be able to be validated because people who are running their own nodes, like, for example, an exchange, would they would verify the transactions that are coming in and the blocks that are coming in on their own, and they wouldn't accept an invalid chain. But at the same time, because this transaction validation takes time, when a block is received by a miner, 
they have to wait a little while to validate the block before it is absolutely assuredly safe for them to build on top of it. Now, we have seen in recent months some miners cutting corners here and starting work on top of a block as soon as they receive the block header for it without even checking if it's valid or not. This is profitable for the miners. It makes sense for them to do it. But unfortunately, it's not good for the network because it's possible that the work that they're building off of is not actually a valid block. And indeed, we have seen this in some cases. And in that case, they can fork the network with majority hash power off onto another fork that is rooted on an invalid block. That invalidates the security assumptions behind SPV wallets, mobile wallets that you have on your phone or on your laptop. So miners need to do validation and users are doing validation and exchanges are doing validation. This is what we would call economic consensus as opposed to the distributed technical consensus of the network. Is that kind of a proper way of looking at it? And maybe you can, uh, you can delve into that and how it affects the different economic incentives and, and plays around with how people actually interact with the Bitcoin network and why they even use it. Well, economic incentive is a, is a very interesting word. I, I, I take that to mean things that we come to agreement on because we, it is in everyone's communal best interest to do so. It makes good business sense, um, as opposed to things we come to agree on for specific reasons, because the math checks out. So when you're running a full node, it really just cares that the math checks out. But when we come into these contentious issues, when there is a fork of the network, for example, ultimately it needs to be decided in one way. In some cases, such as the, the, the SPV mining where they weren't validating blocks, that got settled by the technical side. Because they were able to look it back and say, okay, we were in fact building on an invalid block. We'll correct it. It was our mistake and we'll take the hit. But in other cases, for example, in 2013, we had a hard fork of the network where it wasn't immediately obvious which which side was, was valid and which side was not. And in that case, it was manually resolved because we were able to, to, to look and get some insight into who was running which on which side of the fork, and it turned out that a lot of services were on one side. And so out of fear that people might be double spent, we did, you know, we, the community as a whole, decided, well, we should we should side with the services and not not the miners who were on the other side of the fork. Yeah, and I think if I recall correctly, that was Gavin, uh, not Gavin, uh, Mike Hearn's first commit to Bitcoin, <laughs> right? The fork didn't. Well, I think Dr. Woolley <laughs> discovered the bug. And then within 23 minutes in the IRC chat, everybody had kind of dis- not gone from discovering the, the bug even existed to figuring out what caused it, coming up with a potential solution, figuring out who would be least impacted from a user experience point of view, mm-hmm. settling on consensus, finding the right people that needed to be talked to, implementing the plan, mm-hmm. and getting it all resolved to bring the, the chains back into consensus. I mean, mm-hmm. you could say everybody, like the beehive, just went to work, yeah. right? It was, um, yeah, absolutely. There was a very fast reaction to that. It, it definitely, and I think it happened like three together. o'clock in the morning. And then, it, <laughs> uh, so I guess depending on your time zone, US yes, time it was, zone. it was, it was, a, it was a bad time. And then for, by the morning, when everybody woke up, the users that woke up, they basically. Mm-hmm were completely unaffected in any way. Yeah, it only lasted a few hours, possibly as much as 10. My memory is a little faulty on this, but it was less than a day, and it was very quickly resolved. It does go to show there's a lot of people paying attention when one of these forks show up. It's, it is a serious concern. It is something that we worry about. It's something that uh, some of us who, who, who have 
nodes that are watching the network will receive our SMS messages when something goes wrong and we spring into action. But um, A volunteer fire department? <laughs> a volunteer fire department. That's what it is, yeah. I, I don't want to fault too much either the, 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 the people who are involved. I mean, it, it, is, it, it is certainly, I guess, humorous, I guess, that, uh, that, it, that it was Mike Kern's first commit. But he, it was a good commit in that we were moving from the Berkeley database to a much more performant database. And it was just... It exposed bugs we didn't know about. And there are probably a lot of these bugs still in Bitcoin. Well, and it goes to show just how complicated this is because it's not like, I mean, Mike Hearn proposes the commit, mm-hmm. but then a bunch of people check it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, a bunch of the very experienced people that understand Bitcoin, been working on it for years, they checked it. They're like, hey, looks good to me. All right, well, so they checked off on it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's the, the junior analyst gives it to the to the managing partner. The mm-hmm. managing partner is like, hey, it looks good to me. <laughs> uh, and it's not just one, you know, core developer that, that signs off on it. You usually have to have multiple that mm-hmm. sign off on uh, any of the particular changes. So, I mm-hmm. mean, it passed the review of multiple of the senior people and still got committed in there and caused a bug. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not solely Mike Hearn's fault. I mean, it you could say everybody in that whole chain that, that signed off on it and everything is partially at fault because, but it was just an unforeseeable bug. These it's things a, happen. It's a know? very tricky circumstance because it that particular bug was actually in the old code, um, not the new code. The new code has worked very well for us ever since it was merged into Bitcoin, but it was not compatible with the old code that had the bug in it. And so that lack of compatibility, the fact that, Locks were exhausted for big blocks, and therefore validation would fail somewhat probabilistically. Caused the network to split, and it may even have been triggered earlier. We don't we don't really know because earlier it would have just happened that one for one person found a block and their block was rejected by the network. It would have looked like any other stale or orphan block, and we wouldn't have known. Maybe our orphan count was too high because of this. So it, it, it's very hard to create an environment where you can do adequate testing on these changes to know in advance what the implications are going to be. So I, I guess if there's if there's a lesson to be learned from that, it's definitely that as a volunteer community maintaining this, we have to be have an action plan for for coming to the ready whenever there is a, a, a system like this and a procedure for, for, for coming to consensus about what to do about it. You know, in that case, it was kind of ad hoc, but it happened and it happened quickly that you know, miners were brought online and the service operators of major exchanges were brought online and a decision was made. That's that's what economic majority is. That's that's how you make Yeah, I mean, you've consensus. got economic majority, you've got technical competence and majority. Mm-hmm. Everybody's springing to, uh, to put out the fire. And it, at the end of the day, it didn't really burn that much down. I mean, the price dropped like 30, <laughs> 40% within a, those couple hours, but quickly rebounded mm-hmm. uh, when, when the fire was put out. But I guess it goes to show just the sheer confidence that, mm-hmm. that Bitcoin needs to gain in order to really, you know, have this industry built on top of it to gain the confidence of users. It's, it's hard because, uh, particularly in the early days, but even still now, it's true that Bitcoin operates the way it does you know, with with certain safeties and guarantees that are unbacked. We we don't know for absolute certainty that that Bitcoin is not vulnerable to the worst kinds of exploits. It's happened in a few times in its past that exploits were found, even ones that that allowed anyone to spend anyone else's coins. Thankfully, they were responsibly disclosed and they were closed off very quickly before it was any much of an issue. But, you know, it's entirely possible there could be one or two more lurking in there. And so 
it's a little hard because we can't guarantee anything like that those bugs don't exist. But at the same time, we also can make slow but steady software engineering choices that diminish the likelihood of these existing or would expose them if they did. And so we've been refactoring Bitcoin. We've been making streamlining it, making the code simpler, all with the, the goal of discovering some of these bugs. And occasionally a few have popped out. Yeah, like uh, BIP66. Mm, Maybe yeah. you can go in a little bit in depth about like, yeah, that how, was... how exactly did that all play out? <laughs> I mean, we didn't go splash that on the front of Reddit well, until, like yeah, after the fact, that, right? That actually, yeah, that happened. Um, actually, my coworker, um, Peter's first day on at Blockstream, he just yeah, that would that, be but... that would be Doctor Peter Wool, Doctor Peter Mister yes. Superman, <laughs> <laughs> responsible for more lines of, of the Bitcoin code base than probably Satoshi himself. He is he is a he is a machine. Yeah, and I think he's increased the scalability of it fifty to hundred x over the oh, last definitely. year. Or at so. least that. I mean, just, um, yeah. The only the only way we're able to handle one megabyte blocks now is due primarily to to Peter's work. Also, perhaps Matt Carollo's uh, relay network. Yeah. So, so, anyways, back to <laughs> yeah. So, BIP sixty six. Doctor Woolley. So, BIP sixty six was a bug that has always existed in Bitcoin from day one, and what it was is we rely on this external library, OpenSSL, for doing signature validation. And as it turns out, this was unknown even to the OpenSSL authors, I believe, but its behavior on thirty two bit and sixty four bit machines is inconsistent. So. It has been entirely possible since the birth of Bitcoin to author a transaction which would validate on a 32-bit machine, but would not validate on a 64-bit machine, or possibly vice versa. And uh, this, of course, is uh, it's a it's a ticking time bomb because anyone who authored such a transaction, and it's not a common transaction, would have immediately split the network, somewhat arbitrarily, between 32-bit nodes and 64-bit nodes. Perhaps not too serious because obviously uh, most most people running services do so on on industry grade servers that are probably 64 bit. So that definitely would have been decided in the favor of the 64 bit machines. But you know, there's probably a few servers out there here and there where it runs some either a wallet or some sort of other software on a on a low powered 32 bit device, and those would have been forked off the network. And so we really don't know what the what the economic consequences of that could have been. And for that reason, it was not desirable to reveal the fact that this actually existed, that there was this bug. And so there had to be authored a fix with a plausible deniability for actually doing something good. And that had to be deployed and rolled out into Bitcoin and eventually accepted before details of the release could be made or of the security vulnerability. So that in and of itself was a challenge that that took quite a bit of time. It probably took about six months total from start to finish, perhaps even more to get the patch out uh, in the first place. And uh, it was a good learning experience. It was a faster rollout than many of the other changes that we've done in the past that were non-emergencies. But it for something that was such a secure, uh, such a such a massive vulnerability of the Bitcoin network, it's a little alarming. It took us six months to get it out. Obviously, hampered by the fact we couldn't tell people why, but it's still still a little alarming. Well, well it makes me kind of chuckle because I've been at several different conferences, and one of them, the chief legal counsel for the U.S. Federal Reserve, was talking about how. You know, if there's a cybersecurity incident at a publicly traded firm, it usually costs between five and seven million dollars. Mm-hmm. And if it's actually made public, it usually costs on average about three percent of the market cap. And so there's <laughs> this extremely strong incentive to keep secret any security vulnerabilities wow. that actually happen at the big publicly traded companies. So when we actually see that like Morgan Stanley 
And from what I understand, Morgan Stanley's got the best tech group of all the big Wall Street banks. So when Morgan Stanley loses personally identifiable information for tens of millions of customers, it just makes you wonder, like, well, what else is going on at these big companies? And yet in Bitcoin's case, you know, the code's all open source. I mean, anybody can review it at any time. So, uh, you know, it just kind of changes the whole dynamics about how we responsibly deal with and disclose and talk about issues that could be happening at the very most fundamental levels mm-hmm. of Bitcoin and how to do that responsibly. I agree. There's, there's a different dynamic at play, in part because changes to Bitcoin affect not just the people who run the version that you changed. If it's consensus code, it affects everyone in the Bitcoin economy. And so to have the power to make a change, even without forcibly rolling it out, that could affect a multi-billion dollar economy is a pretty unique situation. Well, we've had just a tremendous and excellent interview with Mark Friedenbach, uh, a core Bitcoin developer for several years. Uh, Thanks so much for being with us, Mark. Thank you. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share Bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise, spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.